You're listening to Capturing Christianity, a ministry aimed at exposing the intellectual side of Christian belief. Are demons real? That's the topic of today's debate between Christian and atheist. I, for one, am certainly excited for this, and I'll post another episode next week on the same topic. So let's dive right in and see which side has the better case. Good evening. My name is Cameron Bertuzzi. This is Capturing Christianity. And what we're doing tonight is a debate on whether or not demons exist in reality. I've got an atheist with me. I've got a Christian with me. This is uh, somewhat of an informal debate. Let me actually go ahead and bring them in. I've got Ben Watkins down here. He's been on the channel a few times, uh, several times, in fact, and then Dr. Shandon Guthrie. And he's been on the channel in in the past. He's got his book behind him. We've done an interview on his book. Um, We don't have a lot of time tonight, actually, so what we're going to do is forego our usual introductions, and I'm going to point you to the description if you'd like to learn more about my two guests, and we're just going to dive right in to the dialogue for tonight, and what we're going to do is 10-minute openings from each of my guests, followed by about 30 to 40 minutes of dialogue, so in total, we'll go for about an hour, Um, but with that, let's just dive right in. And what we're going to do is Shandon's going to go first. So we're just going to give the floor to him. He's got, uh, as I say, 10 minutes. I'll go ahead and time it on my phone. And then uh, after this 10 minutes, Ben will go and then we'll turn to open dialogue. So really excited about this. This has been uh, in the works for several months and I'm just really excited to to hear the two of these guys interact. So uh, and hope you are too. So here we go. All right, uh, Dr. Guthrie, whenever you're ready. All right. Thank you so much, Cameron, for having me on. And Uh, Ben, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I'm glad the technology is cooperating now, so uh, let's get right to it. Well, as a Christian, for me, uh, the stakes are actually kind of low. Um, If it should turn out that something called demons do not exist, then really no important doctrine is, is being adversely affected here. One exception might be, of course, if you held to a particular uh, view of the ransom theory of the atonement, which portrays you know, Jesus paying the penalty for our sins to the figure of Satan. But I think if you hold to that particular dynamic, even if you hold to a ransom theory, it's not typically construed that way. So overall, I think for most of us, for me in particular, uh, it's not a game changer. So quibbling over the existence of demons, quite frankly, it's like quibbling over whether the Amorites existed or whether the Hittites existed. And, uh, you know, as part of the or among the enemies of Israel. And the truth is, as many Christians actually don't believe that demons actually exist. And I'm not just talking about, you know, wild eyed liberal Christians, but also relatively conservative ones, too, like um, Alexander Hodge and Karl Barth. So despite being a Christian, I actually lack any incentive to be a demonic realist here. I'm not motivated by protecting or insulating any doctrines, or um, I don't have to protect my fundamental worldview. So I could take it or leave it. So while that's the case, for the naturalist, I think that these stakes are quite higher, and everyone should keep this in mind because, you know, 
while it may not impact adversely my particular worldview, it does raise a lot of questions for naturalists. Uh, naturalists. So just not for me. So one way or the other, uh, whether they exist or not. So the hypothesis, if we want to call it that under dispute then, is that you know demons exist. So what does this mean? What are these things? Well, I'm going to offer up a minimalist account here. I, uh, I define demons as suprahuman spiritual beings that are morally perverse, if not downright malicious. Superhuman spiritual beings are morally perverse, if not downright malicious. Um, the word demon actually comes from the Greek daimon, which has no narrowly specific meaning. Uh, it could mean something like superhuman or, or transcendent forces or you know, guiding principles or whatever. It's very generic and vague in the Greek language. So um, for me, I should say that it does definitely pick out a certain kind of person. By spiritual, we could mean one of three things. So historically, there have been three views on this. Um, one most common and uh, current, I would say, is to view the spirituality of the demons as entailing that they are purely immaterial. Uh, this is popularized by Pseudo-Dionysius and uh, very much so by Thomas Aquinas, to give some examples. But then there's also the earlier view amongst the Christian church and uh, the antecedent Greeks, secular Greeks, and that's the view that spiritual might mean something quasi-material, like as if to say demons were composed of a sort of polymorphous substance that they variously would identify with ether or air or vapor or something along those lines. And that was a view you can go back to the pre-Socratics like Anaximenes, um, Anaximander, you can go to Plato, you can go all the way into the Christian church into the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, and see this represented by Augustine. And then finally, you have the possibility that demons are material things. This was a view that Thomas Hobbes held. And uh, you actually have defenders of this view today. The theologian Austin Freeman actually defends a, defends a version of this, and he identifies um, not only them as material, but says that they're probably trans-dimensional. So he kind of helps himself to various, you know, interdimensional theories about, or extra-dimensional theories about space and time. So I don't know if I have to commit to a particular ontology at this juncture, but um, th those are the three options one could take. Of course, I should say something about what demons are not, just to forego any uh, misconceptions here. They're not gremlins or you know, monsters or goat men that are gifted at playing the pan flute and, and things of that sort. They're not horned, winged creatures with goatees, pitchforks, and sporting red union suits. Um, you know, all of the things that, that Renaissance and medieval art would depict, these were representative, not really descriptive. Certainly don't go to the Simpsons TV show to identify what Satan or demons look like. That's right, that all of that is just sort of um, clever overlay in pop culture. I do not think that demons have superpowers, as it were. Um, they do not bend the laws of physics. And if they're immaterial, they don't even move tables around your living room. So contrary to portraits like in Paranormal Activity, it's likely that they don't do that sort of thing. And for that matter, they wouldn't interact directly with anything um, material. So for me, all things being equal, and according to what I find to be a biblical worldview, demons are relatively unremarkable in that, in that sense. 
So one might appeal then to things like diabolical harassments, which would include possession cases and instances of voice hearing. Though I think there is a route to justifying belief in demons on the basis of others' experiences, there is epistemic distance for us as outsiders sufficient to not move the needle for skeptics. And, and that includes Christian skeptics too, me included. Having very limited experience and, and not having adjudicated reliable, uh, you know, the reliability among the reports, because there's too many of them, and I haven't had, I haven't exhausted my time engaging those, I will not stake my camp here. But neither can we conclude that they're all lies or cases of misdiagnosis or that there's nothing to these stories whatsoever. There is no, they don't exist as a default position. So I'm just going to present a more of a traditional argument. That's the historical argument. Um, this is the main ground on which I would stand. And so here, here we go in as brief time as I possibly can. Um, premise one, for any action and or belief by Jesus, Jesus being an alleged you know, proper spokesperson for God, that action and or belief by Jesus would be sufficiently divinely approved by God if a relevant miracle obtains in Jesus. So that this is just to say that miracles, I believe, serve to endorse whichever one's message or action they are made to accompany. And this was a bar set by those living in the first century, and, and including Jesus himself. The skeptical Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs <clears throat> that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus calibrated his own ministry on the basis of such miracles. He said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And again, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Premise two, Jesus has beliefs about and or performs actions that imply demonic realism. This is relatively uncontroversial. Um, it's not disputed that in the Gospels Jesus teaches about Satan and his kingdom, that he performed at least four exorcisms, um, that he carried on conversations on some of the, with some of these evil spirits. And the New Testament church understood him to be an exorcist. Even critical Jews at the time and onward understood him to be an exorcist. Now, I think the Gospels are historically reliable. <clears throat> this is no doubt going to be controversial. Um, I, that is to say, I think they're sufficient to be trustworthy in this regard because, among other things, they are early enough. Uh, they get a lot of things correct. They get a lot of things right. And the authors would have been situated so as to reveal such historical information. We also know that the genres are not fictional or symbolic works like literary myth, legend, or apocalypse, like, you know, Epic of Gilgamesh or the Book of Revelation. Premise three I believe a relevant miracle obtains in Jesus, his resurrection being one par excellence. So the early disciples firmly uh, reported seeing Jesus alive again after his public execution. They proclaimed him, they, they proclaimed such actually, in the face of intense opposition, as well as in the face of threat of incarceration and even execution. They had every reason to openly claim that they had personally uh, seen, they had every reason not to openly claim that they had personally seen Jesus alive again. The nature and context of their experience likely preclude any mistaken interpretation on their part. So from one to three, we get now four. Demonic realism, I think, is sufficiently divinely approved by God. 
And number five, if demonic realism is sufficiently divinely approved by God, then demonic realism is true. So from four to five, the ultimate conclusion is demonic realism is true. As uncomfortable as that makes me, I have to, like a reluctant blindsided government, believe that there is a certain kind of terrorist in our midst. That was almost exactly 10 minutes. Well done. All right, let's turn it over to Ben. So uh, Ben actually has a couple slides that he wants to share. So uh, Ben, whenever you're ready, just go ahead and start. I've got your screen up now. Ben, uh, your uh, microphone's not working again. Sorry. <laughs> I said uh, you, had, you, you muted that? yourself. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Um, let me begin by thanking Dr. Guthrie for agreeing to have a discussion with me and Cameron for hosting us on his channel. Um, it probably comes as no surprise I'm an anti-realist about theism and demons and that I believe all claims about God, Satan, and demons are either false or meaningless. My aim in this discussion will be to justify a methodological naturalism while critiquing Dr. Guthrie's supernaturalism. According to Dr. Guthrie's demonic realism, or what I'll call demonism, scripture speaks of an aggregate of seemingly non-human finite spirits residing in a transcendent world that intersects with and influences ours. But according to metaphysical naturalism, the natural causal order is causally closed such that there are no supernatural agents that causally interact with it. This conception of naturalism rules out supernatural causes like the wills of God, Satan, or any demons. Dr. Guthrie believes there can be good supernatural explanations such that theism and demonism can be justified. He gave an argument uh, to that effect tonight. If metaphysical naturalism is true, though, Dr. Guthrie must be mistaken about this. There is another form of naturalism that is methodological rule rather than a metaphysical proposition. According to methodological naturalism, our methods of scientific inquiry should proceed as if metaphysical naturalism were true. In practice, metaphysical and methodological naturalism are indistinguishable. As Gregory Dawes puts it, in the wake of Darwin, no religious explanation of a feature of the natural world would be taken seriously, at least by scientists. Even if scientists could discover no natural ca cause of the phenomenon in question, they would assume that one exists. This exclusion of divine agency has become a taken-for-granted feature of scientific endeavor. The attitude it expresses is often described as the naturalism of the modern sciences. But is this naturalism of the modern sciences justified? Could there be successful supernatural explanations? I argue that the naturalism of the mar mar modern sciences is justified, and our explanatory theorizing should proceed as if metaphysical naturalism is true, because theism in general, and demonism in particular, are poor explanations. They are poor explanations because they are neither informative explanations, nor are they consistent with our background knowledge. And this lack of explanatory vir virtue is not compensated for by other explanatory virtues like simplicity, testability, or past explanatory success. Let me now turn to the concept of an explanation. A potential explanation makes some fact more intelligible than it otherwise would have been, and an actual explanation is a potential explanation that is reasonable to accept. These definitions are admittedly not very helpful, though, because we now have to ask when an explanation makes some fact more intelligible and when a potential explanation is a reasonable one to accept.
I will answer these questions using what I call the Pierce-Dawes schema that can be found in Gregory Dawes' excellent book, Theism and Explanation. I will understand a potential explanation making some fact more intelligible as satisfying the second line of this schema, and the four lines taken together give us necessary and sufficient conditions for when it's reasonable to accept a potential explanation as an actual explanation. So the first line is the surprising fact E is observed. The second is that the hypothesis would be a satisfactory explanation of the evidence. No available competing hypothesis would explain the evidence as well as the hypothesis does. And it is reasonable to accept the best available potential explanation of any fact, provided that explanation is a satisfactory one. Therefore, it is reasonable to accept the hypothesis. This schema helps us understand what a theistic or demonic explanation would have to look like if we were to accept it as the best potential explanation of some observation. But how do we decide whether some competing potential explanation is better or worse than another? Unfortunately, there may be no algorithm that settles this question. Instead, we'll have to settle for comparing explanatory virtues. An explanatory virtue is neither a necessary nor sufficient condition for a good explanation, but they are desirable features, or what Gregory Dawes calls desiderata. They count in favor of an explanan given some explandum. Good explanations exhibit one or more of these virtues, and supernatural explanations should be no exception. Let's now consider the explanatory virtue of being an informative explanation. What we want is for hypotheses to predict the observation because of features of the explanation that can be independently justified. Gregory Dawes calls this a criterion of independent specification for what some deemed deity or demon will do. Dawes claims if we are to judge a theistic or demonic explanation to be a potential explanation, we must be able to specify what would follow if it were true in a way that is independent of the fact we know the explanandum to be true. We must be able to produce an argument that has, a, has the explanands among its premises and a description of the explanandum as its conclusion. Such an intentional explanation would look something like this. There is a rational deity or demon D with intended goals G. This demon has a certain set of beliefs relating to achieving these goals. If these beliefs were true, some action E would be the best way of achieving these goals, and rational agents always choose the best way of achieving their goals. Therefore, this demon will perform action E. Dr. Guthrie's view, so far as I can tell, has no such criterion of independent specification. We have no way of independently determining what the goals or beliefs of God, Satan, or any demon would actually be. We have little idea what follows empirically from them. They lack empirical content and so are unfalsifiable. The best we can do is the independently justified rationality principle in my premise four, that rational agents always choose the best way of achieving their goals. But as we will see, this principle raises issues of its own for theism when we consider our next explanatory virtue, consistency with background knowledge. According to Dawes, background knowledge is best thought of as those facts of which we are aware independently of the explanation in question. All the propositions we have reason to regard as true other than the proposed explanations. I argue that both theism and demonism are a poor fit with our background knowledge and so have a very low prior probability. Let me illustrate this with an example from Eliot Sober. It is perfectly possible for a hypothesis to have a high likelihood and a low posterior probability. 
When you hear noises in your attic, this confers a high likelihood on the hypothesis that there are gremlins up there bowling. But few of us would conclude that this hypothesis is a good explanation. Theism and demonism are like Sober's gremlin hypothesis. Even if we concede such hypotheses can informally predict the data to be explained, which we've just seen there's reason to doubt, those hypotheses do not fit well with our background knowledge. The philosopher J.L. Mackey argued this way in The Miracle of Theism. We have to weigh in our scales the likelihood or unlikelihood that there is a power of fulfilling intentions directly without any physical or causal mediation. There is nothing in our background knowledge that makes it comprehensible, let alone likely that anything should have such a power. All our knowledge of intention fulfillment is of embodied intentions being fulfilled indirectly by way of bodily changes and movements, which are causally related to the intended result. The very notion of a non-embodied spirit is intrinsically improbable in relation to our background knowledge and that our experience reveals nothing of the sort. But this is not the only way theism and demonism are inconsistent with our background knowledge. Dr. Guthrie's case for demons in particular turns crucially on the case for theism generally. There are good reasons to think theism is not actually part of our background knowledge. He needs a uniquely theistic foundation for his Christian house before he can be even begin to attempt to convince us it is haunted by demons. As an atheist, I obviously do not concede this foundation because of David Hume's most famous question in his Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. Is the world considered in general, and as it appears to us in this life, different from what a man or such a limited being would, beforehand, expect from a very powerful, wise, and benevolent deity? I earlier mentioned the rationality principle at the heart of intentional explanations raises problems for theism. The problems are evil and hiddenness. Given the biological role of pain and pleasure and the existence of non-resistant non-theists, the likelihood that there is such a being as God is low. Perhaps you may think that theism and demonism can overcome these explanatory shortcomings by, explaining, by displaying some other explanatory virtue like simplicity, testability, or past explanatory success. I'm skeptical that any supernatural explanation has such virtues, and I hope to discuss this further with Dr. Guthrie. Theism and demonism are often require ad hoc assumptions to avoid being falsified, postulate more primitive entities and principles than metaphysical naturalism, and are part of a research program that has not enjoyed much success since Darwin. It seems that we when we consider simplicity, testability, and explanatory success, along with informativeness and consistent with the background dodge, both theism and demonism score poorly. And I'll go ahead and stop there. All right. Well, now let's turn to a time. Uh, yeah, that was exactly 10 minutes. You guys did a great job. So let's now turn to uh, 30, 40 minutes of uh, just moderated dialogue. What I try to do, if this is your first time to capturing Christianity, I, I personally, I try to stay out of the conversation as much as possible. I may jump in here or there just to kind of move things along if I feel like things are being unproductive or not moving uh, in the way that they could. So that's my role. But otherwise, I'm, I'm just going to open the floor to uh, both Ben and Dr. Guthrie. And yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to sit back and listen and, and enjoy the conversation. So who, whoever would like to begin, well, well let's, let's turn over to, to Shannon. We'll give him a, a chance to share his thoughts and then we can go from there. Okay. Um, thank you for that presentation, Ben. And this is actually something that we read, uh, in the literature quite frequently. I know that Lewis Vaughn and Theodore Schick, they're, they're pretty critical of um, anything, any supernatural explanations. They offer what they call criteria of adequacy, which 
pretty much follows the same scenario. And um, and uh, recently, David Kyle Johnson um, has taken on the world of the demonic and pretty much employing the same metric here, that you have these particular explanatory virtues and the hypothesis of, you know, demons just never measures up to it. Well, let me just say in, in brief response or as a way of opening this, um, first of all, I was very careful to set aside uh, attempting to explain, you know, so-and-so's account of, say, a possession or voice hearing. I tipped my hat to it because the reports are, are ubiquitous and they're very variegated and diverse. They transcend culture and time and ethnicity and, and the lot. And I don't want to be dismissive and say that there's just no uh, core to it whatsoever. One of my concerns is that, um, Ben, you might be coming to the table with a principle, you say methodological naturalism, but I see that there's either a, a, a prejudice or a, a principled um, naturalism that is essentially going to mitigate against there being um, maybe even the, the plausibility possibility. I'm not sure how strong your language is on that, um, but it seems like that if you take, because uh, you were talking about background information as well, and I would want to populate that a little bit more, I would think I would be entitled to if I had good arguments, say, for God's existence. I gave an argument for the resurrection of Jesus, and it seems to me that if, those are, if any of, of that goes through, then naturalism is off the table, and now what constitutes our at least updated background information would include something like the existence of God and uh, the, the person of Jesus. So I know you mentioned a lot here, and I'll just simply leave it at that, and I don't know if you want to follow up with anything or have a question. Yeah, sure. So uh, there, so there's a lot um, there that I agree with with what, with, with what you said, uh, but let me start with some of the points of disagreement um uh well now let me start with a point of clarification because i think you made a good point uh you did saying how strong my claims are here um and so i distinguish between a potential explanation and an actual explanation and so if i were to be giving an in principle objection here to demonism that i would be denying that demonism could even be a potential explanation and that it would, you know, we wouldn't need to consider the fact even further. I'm not making that strong claim tonight. I am um, conceding that demonism and theism more broadly um, can be potential explanations. And so the question that I want to ask is, when can that potential explanation be an actual explanation? When would we accept it into something like science? Um, which brings me to one of the points where I think we might have some disagreement in that um, I have, I'm starting from a prejudice against supernatural explanations, because what I think I'm starting with is um, a procedural rule that I do think is non-negotiable in the sense that we should appeal to facts and evidence that are publicly available to everyone. So um, yes. basically, our inquiries should start our, um, with our experiences of the world and our explanatory theorizing about it. And so I don't think that that starting point in any way um, is prejudiced against supernatural explanations. In fact, I think 
we could postulate supernatural entities as part of explanations in the same way that we postulate things like electrons and black holes. They would be features that if they helped made the, make the world more intelligible, they should just be part of science. They should just be part of how we go about explaining the things that we observe in the world. And so I want to be as generous as I can um, to the supernatural hypothesis, because what I'm defending is methodological naturalism, the idea that we should proceed as if um, metaphysical naturalism is true, because that um, working hypothesis, which is provisional, um, has enjoyed all of these explanatory virtues and being informative, um, having um, ex uh, a history of very good success, you know, since the start of the, the Enlightenment. Um, they're testable. So these are um, explanations that we can go out, testable, repeatable, um, they're informative. And so I think that, they're the, that that rule, that methodological rule of proceeding as if metaphysical naturalism is true um, is justified. Okay, I mean, most of that I, I don't disagree with. Uh, I think that that's a sensible, rational approach. Uh, I, I heard you link testable with repeatable. I want to be careful about that. For example, you invoked Elliot Sober, and he has also written a paper on uh, testability in which he's talking about expectation. And um, But uh, let me just ask you this question. Would there literally be no circumstances that if you were to be in the presence of Let's say you were, let's say Cameron decided to call up some of his buddies and say, hey, let's go to Vatican City. We're going to, we're going to sit in on an exorcism here. Would there really be nothing that would move you? Or might there be some things that would make you go, I think there might be some kind of alien force at work here? Um, yeah. So um, that would, first off, excite me. I'd love to go on a trip uh, like that uh, to do something, to do something like that. Um, so um, I grew up in a home of magicians, so I've grown up uh, doing sleight of hand and seeing um, just different ways in which perceptions can be um, tweaked and just the different ways in which our um, perception. And so, but to see something in a controlled environment, I think, is exactly what we would need um, in order to um, have a successful theory, theory here. Um, one thing that I would want to do is understand what are the goals of this being. So if there was some sort of test that we could set up in this environment in which we could independently um, ascertain what the goals of these beings are, and then that they had empirical observations that falsified or confirmed um, the predictions of that, that would be very impressive to me. I would be very open and receptive of that. And that, like you said, like that, that would be pretty high stakes in the sense that like, that would be a huge problem for a metaphysical naturalist view is, you know, how would you fit these, um, features into your own ontology? And so I think the, the most rational thing to do here would be to just accept those things. That it would just become part of science. Like, these supernatural beings would just be features that we posited to um, understand 
certain phenomena because they made those phenomena more intelligible. I don't know how they make them more intelligible. I, I think that's where these explanations are lacking, but I'd be certainly open to an experience that you described because that would be publicly, it would be appealing to publicly available um, evidence and it would be using our explanatory theorizing to come to the best explanation of what we're seeing. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I And um, it seems to me that, because I'm thinking about myself here, I'm thinking, okay, so uh, if I had a similar posturing that you do, I would say, I don't believe that artificial intelligence will ever, let's say, will ever give rise to um, genuine self-consciousness. But what if I saw Megan uh, from the movie? Uh, now, I haven't seen it, so I won't offer any spoilers. But if Oh, if the movie. I, now, actually... I get the reference now. <laughs> okay, yes. Thank you. Yeah, that was not a sophisticated philosophical uh, side reference. <laughs> Megan. I was thinking of a philosopher it. named Megan, and I was like, oh, I don't know who he's talking about. And then it clicked. <laughs> right. So the, you know, the recent movie that came out where it, it seems to me that Obviously, that, that, that stuff doesn't really happen. It's a movie and all of that. But I think that we can look at that and say, well, if, if these things really did pan out, and again, I didn't see it. I'm just judging from the trailer. It would strike us as, yes, I think that this is, um, that there's consciousness here and malevolent consciousness on top of it all. I guess Megan wreaks all kind of havoc. And I don't know what the demands would be on on us in order to side with that and to agree. So it sounds like we're not too distant on this. We have a, a skepticism that I have acknowledged. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, so-and-so reported on this, so I'm just going to roll over and, and embrace it. Um, I wouldn't do that. But some reports that are out there are are interesting, and I just don't think that we can say uh, with a confident prejudice that, this, that these beings don't exist, um, because you have someone like a Richard Gallagher is a psychiatrist and, you know, he reports a variety of different um, exorcism stories over the course of 20 to 30 years. He's a self-proclaimed skeptic term believer. And, um, and his, he's published in his most recent book, Demonic Foes. Anyway, and then Craig Keener talks about in his second volume of Miracles, he chronicles like nearly 200 pages of, you know, alleged possession cases and, and on and on the list goes. It's just exhausting. Now, it's interesting with exorcism cases or possession cases is that unlike something like, say, a ghost story or a haunting, um, these are prolonged encounters. And they're typically, you know, there are multiple persons present. And we could say they're all in on it or there's a conspiracy and, and, and certainly all of that's possible. But it, it does lead me to think, hmm, this is interesting. Now, I set that aside and I went then to shift my case, the foundation for my case, not to directly seek demons as direct explanations for various physical phenomena, but I appealed to the ministry of Jesus who proclaimed himself an exorcist and did actions that imply that demons exist. And yet if Jesus is raised from the dead, it seemed like a validation whether we like it or not. It's like a validation that this is a reality that we have to reckon with. And that might shed a different light on, say, the contemporary encounters that we have. 
Um, right. So this is probably a um, great time to introduce uh, David Hume. And so his famous art, um, argument against um, miracle testimony. Um, and so uh, he says something along the lines of, unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous or improbable than the fact which it endeavors to establish, um, then we shouldn't um, believe it. And so I think that Hume raises a pretty good challenge, not an in-principle objection um, to miracles, but an in-practice objection to miracles. And so basically, um, so J.H. Sobel calls this line from Hume, Hume's theorem. And it basically just says that, look, if we're to believe um, that, you know, for all the cases in which um, the miracle testimony, the miracle is more probable than not given the testimony. Um, the probability that the testimony that we would have being false would be more miraculous or more improbable than the miracle itself. So the truth of any miracle testimony is probable if and only if the probability of it being false is less than the probability of the miracle it reports. And so I think that raises a, you know, a really interesting question for us here um, because that question is, is it more improbable or more miraculous? The testimony for Jesus's resurrection is somehow mistaken and it is Jesus really was resurrected by God. And so I think that given our background knowledge of the past success of miracle testimony in the past, that it is more probable that this testimony, that what we have is mistaken. And so that if we wanted to believe something as miraculous as a resurrection, we would need something like a controlled science experiment and not a survey of historical texts. Well, all right. It seems to me that, of course, Hume has been critiqued greatly, and it's it's kind of odd. Yeah, on we one probably won't settle it here. <laughs> right. Um, you had appealed to Hume uh, despite already acknowledging something that even Hume wouldn't acknowledge, and that would be to admit that a supernatural explanation could be forthcoming. Uh, Hume would forbid that. That was, you couldn't even identify a miracle on his criteria. Um, and he has been rightly criticized. And it seems to me that we should, yeah, so there's some semblance here of this idea that this is such an extraordinary claim, we have to have something nearly miraculous. And what are the odds, you know, what are the odds of that kind of a thing? We look at our background. Yeah, Hume's theory. So remember, this is, this is only establishing a prior probability. This is initial probability going into a query here about something like Jesus and the resurrection. It's not the end of the story. We also have to look at the specific evidences, which can certainly override our previous expectations. We're already doing that. Ben, you've already admitted that. In, if we go to Vatican City, there are conditions in which your prior probabilities go out the window and the posterior probability of whatever it is we encounter, and call it a scientific context, could very well overthrow that. So um, <clears throat> I in think fact, that we yes. should let the evidence, yes, I think we should let the evidence decide that. And uh, it's true that there is a, a, a very low prior probability of something miraculous, just, you know, without any background or uh, 
you know, including God, for example, as part of our background information. Um, yes, I agree that that certainly would be improbable. But when you look at the specific evidences, as if we were going to Vatican City, but translating this into the person of Jesus, when I look at the historical testimony, that is the best explanation based on the direct evidence that we have, it seems to me. So even if there is kind of a human modified humane principle that's looming, um, it's not a threat when you consider, I think, some of the, the posterior evidences that we might consider. So um, I would want to be careful by saying that um, the prior improbability just goes away. So what would happen in the probability calculus is that it would be outweighed by yes. some really great um, ex uh, likelihood um judgment and so like i said that 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 experiment would look like a controlled science experiment like something at cern more than it would resemble a survey of historical documents so if if i were at this event in the vatican and we had something that looked like you know a very well controlled science experiment that prior improbability that i had um would be outweighed. And I also, in order to concede this, I said that it would have to be said that we would have to know the intentions or the goals of this de uh, demon. And it's not clear how we would independently justify this, because how do I know that this demon has goals that fit within a um, Christian narrative? What if this is a demon that has goals like in a hindu tradition where these demons you know make people sleep for a hundred years why do these demons have these abilities rather than some other abilities these are the types of questions that i would be expecting to have answers to if i were going to accept that these demons are a an adequate satisfactory explanatory postulate like an electron is or like a black hole is well i don't want to fault non-scientific theories for not being scientific. That that wouldn't be fair. Um, and we have to let, you know, a, a hypothesis get fleshed out as we learn more about it, too. I would say that we can, we would, in a context, let's say, of a possession case, where let's say, you know, some of the usual antics are going on, it seems to me that if we... Um, if this was convincing in, in any respect, we would begin to learn about, say, at least the goals and intentions of this particular alien spirit. And while to jump to, if we want to call it that, hey, this is a demon, because it, it could very well be, you know, your, your uh, ex-husband or something like that that's come back from the dead and is haunting you. I mean, there, you could probably postulate, but naturalism no longer is an option. There's something here and something that's happening. So what I was getting at was trying to say that just simply, and I agree with you about prior probability, the countervailing evidence doesn't eliminate, it just, you know, it, it's taken, you know, into the, uh, the entire equation by which we raise the probability and swamp, as they say, perhaps the, uh, the priors. And, um, and I think that the evidence looks pretty good for the person of Jesus, so that even divorced from what's going on in the modern world, if I'm pretty confident that 
God raised Jesus from the dead and has and and exorcism and talk of demons and whatnot are tethered to his ministry, then it seems to me that I at least am justified in staking my claim on that. And then maybe I can even use that as, you know, once I, if I, if I'm settled on that, then I can go forth after that, I think, and, and use that as an interpretive construct. So it would, I'm building my case that way and not wanting to simply directly say, you have this random experience. It could be a demon. What would that look like? Um, I get it. Maybe there's not definite telltale signs, but there are some things that I can imagine based on reports that are out there uh, that would definitely lead me to think that there's an alien spiritual presence there. Um, and some talk about, you know, the ability to be able to, to speak languages that they didn't know or have insightful knowledge that they didn't have contact with and that sort of thing. And, and I don't know if that's legitimate or not. Th those are the reports. And it seems to me these could be sufficient grounds for thinking that there is, in fact, an alien spiritual presence if I include now in my background the case for the resurrection. Sure. Um, so we can criticize Hume on many grounds. I'll, I'll grant you that. He's, there's many things that Hume said that I think he said too strongly or just was wrong um, about. So what I'm appealing to here is what J.H. Sobel called Hume's theorem. And so Hume's theorem says something very specific. So it follows from the Kolomogorov axioms of probability and the definition of conditional probability. So it's uncontroversial. Um, but what it says is that in order, like a necessary for condition for it to be more probable than not that Jesus was risen from the dead is that the probability that the miracle testimony we have being false would be a greater miracle than Jesus being raised from the dead. Do you believe that that, that that testimony being false would be more improbable than someone being resurrected from the dead? Well, I don't know what you mean by greater miracle. On that. More, more probable. That... So if we're, 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 we're casting this in probabilistic terms, well, we can use right. you know, probability theory to make this. So the idea, because it's very specific what Hume's theorem Again, it follows from the Kolomogorov axioms of probability. We're saying that the probability of that the miracle occurred given some testimony, so being greater than 0.5, more probable than not, that the miracle actually happened given some testimony, that a necessary condition for that is that the probability of the miracle testimony we have being false, that condition must be more improbable than a resurrection event. So whatever the, 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 the prior improbability of a resurrection event is, right. whatever, whatever low prior probability that is, and in order to, a necessary condition is that the testimony we have being false, that the probability of that must be greater, must be the greater miracle, more improbable. And so I think that that's, a very like and so this is part of our background knowledge this Hume's theorem part of our background knowledge so if we're asking uh, what is more probable that Jesus was actually raised from the dead or that the testimony we have is false somehow mistaken I think it's always going to be more probable that the, that the testimony we have is false what, what would change my mind 
if it wasn't a survey of historical documents, if it was a controlled science experiment, if it was, we had some way of ruling out things like deception or mistakes or whatever have you, as far as the historical contingencies and the methods that we use to investigate them. Let me let me say something yeah. really quickly. We've had a couple of people in the live chat say, can we get back to talking about demons? So what I'd like to do is just kind of situate the audience and explain sort of what moves have been made and what's happening right now. So Dr. Guthrie, he in his opening statement, he defended demonic realism by defending a sort of argument for the resurrection. So he didn't you might have expected you might have expected him to say call on some like uh, contemporary accounts of demonic activity and defended demonic realism that way. But he didn't choose to do that. What he defended was an argument for the resurrection. That's how he's defending demonic realism. So then it's very appropriate in this particular context to discuss, you know, the argument for miracles and the resurrection debate. So uh, that's just to help the audience out realize that this is all still relevant to uh, demons and everything. This, this is all sort of tied together. So, all right, let's turn it back over to uh, Shannon. All right. Uh, we don't have to get into the weeds about all of this. Of course, we're, we're returning now to, uh, you know, what's been debated time and again, but let me just say something briefly by way of response is that if all that we're trying to cash out here is that, it just but it needs to be a better explanation than its rivals, then I, I think that we're all on board. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Um, I want to be very careful about trying to impose contemporary scientific laboratory standards into the ancient world. We'll, we'll determine nothing. Uh, an example that Tim McGrew uses has to do with meteorites falling from the sky, and people didn't believe that, right? Even museums hesitated to, to display those. Um, and, uh, you know, certain conditions of the peasants were reporting these things and, you know, no one was going to lower themselves and, and affirm that. Um, but yet it did happen. And so I think that we have to be able to look back into the ancient world and deal with the evidence we have and not with the evidence that we want. And the evidence that we have, it, were the disciples mistaken? Well, I don't know how you can have these prolonged experiences of Jesus, you know, where you're eating with him and, and for up to six weeks after he's allegedly risen. And, you know, he's, he comes across as very fleshly and human. He's manhandled, so the experiences were polymodal. Jesus ate with them. He interacted with skeptics. And it seems to me that to just be, I don't want to be dismissive of that. I think that that lends credence. But to shift the conversation back to demonology, I did make space, interestingly enough, though I wouldn't go here, I did make space for the possibility that demons would be scientific things, um, that they could be material or even quasi-material things. I don't hold that view, but given that that is a possible option without really upsetting any biblical or theological motif, um, does that in any way change the parameters for you in going forward out of curiosity and looking at contemporary cases? Um, I will be honest with you and say that I just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not as familiar as I should be with contemporary case, cases. Um, my could and so that, to be honest with you, I thought that was what we were going to discuss tonight. And so I kind of came in with an open mind, uh, I know, but and so we went a different direction. Um, yeah. But uh, 
I I am open to that idea of, um, like you said, an exp uh, uh, a feature that is explanatorily informative. That if we were to use it, it would make the world more intelligible, and that that's something that we should accept. And so that it, you're you're right. I shouldn't um, hold ancient uh, things different you know more contemporary standards. Um, because what I was using with that analogy is that um, I would want the testimony to be so. Let me we draw it a, an illustration with um, the Salem witch trials. So I can't explain why husbands testified against their wives, why people accused other people of being witches. I have no idea why all of that stuff. There was psychological things, but I don't believe there were any actual witches at Salem. Um, because I think that the probability that all of that witch talk at Salem was false is far more probable than witchcraft. And so, and, but I think the evidence for witchcraft at Salem is better than the evidence we have for the resurrection of Jesus. Because, you know, in, in the Salem witch trial case, we have affidavits written from people. We have testimony. We have court documents. We, you know, and these aren't, you know, second, third, fourth hand, several years down the line. We have the actual documentation from it. Um, and, and still, I think that um, human psychology makes it probable that these things can be false, even though we can't tell the exact story of why all of its faults and it can seem strange. Right. I don't, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if you were intersecting with modern day claims of demons, or if we were returning back to the, the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. Um, yeah. Well, so what, I, what I'm saying is, is that the, the methods aren't necessarily the Salem witch trial, you know, they have the affidavit, you know, these aren't contemporary scientific standards. These are the same types of, evidence of testimony, what I'm saying is that these are better sources, yet we still think that they were systematically mistaken. We don't think that they're, well, maybe you do think that they were witches at Salem. I don't, I shouldn't be presumptuous. No, I don't, I don't think so. I, yeah, um, the, fair enough. There's a filtration system here that I think that we can a, a, agree on, you know, that there was a lot to gain by, of course, pointing out people as witches. It was an opportunity to oust certain individuals to, to, purge the land yeah, but, as husband, were, but husbands and wives and neighbor you know neighbors and friends like people notoriously that you would not expect to out as you know there's there's it's it's a very fact if anyone i recommend it as a student of history if anyone's interested to read about it it's really a fascinating um set of events that i can't make full sense of yeah that that people would do such a thing. And I, I think that would be a defect of, the, of a demon hypothesis anyway. And actually, there were Christians at the time, uh, William Fleetwood, Balthasar Becker, there were um, Christian spokesmen that came out against this kind of thinking. And they argued, you know, listen, demons are immaterial things. They don't or can't interact with the physical world. This is not the thing that you should expect to happen. And so they, you know, obviously Christians were speaking out against that. So I think they mishandled the hypothesis. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I don't think we're, again, going to disagree with that. I don't think there were witches in Salem. 
but uh, we, we've yeah. uh, we, we've got about five to ten minutes left of dialogue. But what I'd I'd like to do for the remainder of the time is, uh, would you mind discussing some of the contemporary accounts? And I know that. Uh, Dr. Guthrie, yeah. this is not something that your case is like built on or anything, but maybe we could just discuss some of those cases and just get Ben's thoughts on them. Mm. Well, um, I would have a hard, I would be hard pressed to be able to to find some of those or to recite those offhand. I'd mentioned Richard Gallagher's book, Demonic Foes. I'm actually interviewing He's him a, next week, so. Uh, oh. Fascinating. Yeah, I've got his book here. There it is. Right. Okay. Yeah. We are segued into his next episode perfectly. (laughs) Well, actually, no, no. Okay. So, (laughs) so, okay. So tomorrow I'm interviewing an exorcist, uh, not, not, not Richard Gallagher, different, different father, Carlos Martins or Martin. And Mm. then, uh, I can't remember if it's Martins or Martin. And then, uh, and then next week I'm, I'm interviewing Richard Gallagher. So I was actually going to take some of like, uh, Ben's skeptical skepticism here and, and try to like <laughs> pawn that off and like use it in my, uh, my interviews. So, um, no, but, uh, he does talk about, I, I've heard it from like, I've interviewed a few people at this point and, uh, something that you mentioned earlier, Dr. Guthrie is, uh, one, one thing that kind of impresses me are these accounts of people who know languages or speak languages that they hadn't prior learned. I think one case, right. if I'm recalling it correctly, in in demonic foes, uh, someone knew six languages that they had never learned previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we could use that case. I mean, what is yeah, that? I mean, how, I, how I probably I don't want to speak for Ben, but I could probably tell you that you know we're hearing this through a filter. We're hearing this from Richard himself. He's the one that's reporting it, and so he probably would want to know. You know, let's let's interview other witnesses. Was there any um, videotape or anything like that? It would be nice to be able to to be involved with that. I would just say that um, something like a like I was saying earlier, a possession case is a very prolonged um, scenario. It's not like one and done. You don't just glance at it like, oh, did I see an apparition or a ghost out of the corner of my eye? Kind of a thing. These people are involved. They bring psychiatrists to the table. That's what Gallagher is a hired gun to do. He's recruited by the Catholic Church to come in and to filter out. And he says quite candidly, you know, a lot of these are they're just suffering from various mental disorders. But, you know, there are some of these that it's like it's to him. It's, you know, not a question. So these are prolonged experiences over uh, hours, days, even several months. They often include multiple eyewitnesses, Gallagher himself being present, and Catholic priests, and maybe others in the room, or family members. It transcends um, class, ethnicity, gender, education, and status. And they're not relegated to a particular religion. It's not just Christians saying, Ray, you know, hurrah, we just want to, you know, show that something about our worldview is right. But there are non-religious sects. There are animistic sects. Uh, you, you look on the continent of Africa, you have the, the African religions, and you have a lot going on there, missionary reports. Uh, there's a plethora of them. Kirk Cook, I think, reports several of these. So you have the geographical disparities. You have um, not just in the modern world, but all throughout history, these reports have been going on, whereas things like UFO abductions are relatively recent. and you know, all of these things, I think, make these what I would call evidentially interesting. Whether they're compelling or not, 
Um, I'll let Ben kind of give the other side. Um, yeah, so I would want to mention the explanatory virtue of past explanatory set success. So um, Gregory Dawes says that any particular hypothesis can be seen as part of a research program or a research tradition, which unites a series of proposed explanations, sharing certain common assumptions, and we can include under background knowledge the past success or failures of the research program to which our hypothesis belongs. And so I think that it's an interesting fact that when we look in the best literature on um, things like psychiatry and psychology, um, particularly domains of medicine, um, we just find, we don't find demons as an explanatory postulate like we find electrons and black holes in physics. And I think that's because of the past explanatory success that something like my methodological naturalism has had in that when we observe these sorts of things, it's we far more frequently are able to attribute natural causes to them. Um, and even if we don't know what those natural causes are, we are justified in continuing to look for further natural causes while rejecting the supernatural explanations. And I think that that past, that past explanatory success, the all the times in which these metaphysically naturalistic hypotheses has replaced supernatural um, hypotheses in the domains of psychology and psychiatry is evidence um, for metaphysical naturalism. Okay, let me push back on that because actually it's um, surprisingly enough, that's actually not the case. Uh, I know that psychiatrists and psychologists obviously do push back and rightly so in many cases, but the fact of the matter is, is, is when um, those in the cognitive science are doing their craft, the clinical psychologists and psychiatrists, they're not isolating causes. They're not talking about causes. They diagnose someone with say, dissociative identity disorder or dissociative transitive disorder or conversion disorder. They're not picking out causes. They're not saying, ah, I know that this person now has a known physical etiology. There's been fights about this amongst psychiatrists and psychologists about whether or not a disease model of mental disorders is even a thing. The fact of the matter is we don't know. They don't, um, they don't discuss or uh, they don't uh, describe these various disorders in terms of causes because they can't, and they'll tell you that. Uh, they, they identify them in terms of syndromal clusters and various symptoms and things that they share in common, but they don't isolate causes. Um, there, as far as I know, there aren't any, and the opening of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual outright says as much. It says that they do not categorize things by way of causes. That doesn't mean there can't be contributory material things called, we would call them triggers or causal pathways, but it's a far more nuanced field. I don't wanna say that they have found what causes all mental odd behaviors and they're always natural. They haven't quite frankly. So I would, so, but the 
entities that are postulated by um, clinical psychologists and clinical psychiatrists are natural entities. So when we look in medical journals, um, we don't find supernatural entities postulated in those fields, do we? No, but they don't have natural causes. There's no etiology for depression, for example. There are triggers, there are causal pathways, but you can't say, you can't get a biomarker of your, from your blood and go, ah, we found the depression, we can remove it now. It, it's, not, um, it's not a substance or anything like that. It's not an alternative. It's a very nuanced thing, the way things converge nature, nurture, and all of that to bring about someone's various conditions. I'm not saying demons cause mental disorders. I want to be very clear about that. What I'm saying is, is that because in psychology and psychiatry, they don't talk about causes at all, natural or otherwise, I don't think that we can say, well, the field is dominated by them isolating natural causes, and we just have to know that the scoreboard is racked up on the naturalist side against the supernatural side, when the reality is, is they've dropped talking about causation or uh, etiologies and, um, you know, causal origins at all, only triggers and such. Uh, I don't think I have much to say in response. <laughs> okay. All right. uh, uh, I I didn't know if there was a question there or. Oh, I was just I just when it was trying to just say that we don't want to look at the field of psychology and psychiatry and say that it's settled, that it's dominated by material causes. And so that stacks the deck against the prospect of an outside of any outside exogenic cause or influence. So that's all I was saying. Okay. I was just sort of responding oh, okay, okay. to that. Uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, um, let's do this because uh, Ben, I, I want to get you out of here. I know you got to get some sleep and stuff for for work. So, um, I'll let you have the last word, and then we'll we'll just close out the show, and then uh, maybe maybe we can also ask the audience like if you'd like to see these two interact more, then we can schedule another time to to have another dialogue. But uh, Ben, go ahead and have the last word here. Okay. Uh, well, let me just uh, wrap up what it was I was trying to defend in my opening statement to, and then maybe kind of tie that back in to where we left the conversation off. So my aim tonight was to defend a methodological naturalism. So I think that our explanatory theorizing should proceed as if metaphysical naturalism were true, where metaphysical naturalism is the view that all that the natural causal order is causally closed such that there are no supernatural causes. And so I, to tie this back into um, what we were just talking about, I think that what clinical psychologists and clinical psychiatrists do is that they have this working assumption of methodological naturalism. That because of the past explanatory success, of method, methodological naturalism, that explanatory virtue in combination with other explanatory virtues is what justifies them proceeding in their explanatory theorizing about psychological facts and psychiatric facts and whatnot in natural terms. So what you're not going to see 
from a clinical psychiatrist or clinical psychiatrist in my in, in in my view and maybe i'm wrong about this but is that they're not going to postulate an entity like a demon in order to make more intelligible some observations about psychology or psychiatry um and that um, methodological naturalism that rule is justified all right uh well i i know i said that like we we would end it right after we uh, we give it to ben but i, I kind of feel like it's appropriate to give dr guthrie just a chance maybe 60 oh, seconds sure. to kind of sum, summarize his views and, and then we can close out the show yeah uh a prejudice by any other name still smells as sweet i'm afraid and it's true that they're not a psychologist wouldn't come out there and say i think in this case maybe a demon is responsible but that's because they're not isolating causes anyway there's no singular cause for anything really they, they can trace certain things schizophrenia might have genetic links and that sort of thing but there are comorbidities at play uh, someone suffering from po post-traumatic stress disorder, that's literally caused by other persons. So it's, it's, um, it's not inconceivable, certainly, that there could be alien spiritual realities that could um, contribute or be the source of on certain occasions, even if they're rare, um, by which they could be causes in, in someone's particular behavior if it has telltale signs of, say, a possession instance. So I just want to be very careful not to, you know, you say then methodological naturalism, but it, and it, but that may be how scientists engage in their craft. I don't know why we have to sort of limit ourselves that this is just a scientific enterprise when we're talking about metaphys potentially metaphysical realities. If we were talking about platonic forms, everything you said would be the final word. There could be no platonic forms. Uh, they could never be responsible or have anything to do with reality. And, I don't, and, and failing platonic forms for not you know, obeying certain principles of science, I think, would be stretching it. Uh, I think that weighing explanations is healthy and good, and we should do that. And I think that there's a route to be made for showing certain cases of possession to actually look far more interesting that we might be willing to give credit for. And that's, in fact, why I've been uh, spending so much time on this topic as of late. I mean, not only does the audience seem to be very interested in, in this topic, I'm interested in it as well. And there's uh, a lot of, I mean, these accounts are, are not easy to explain, especially if you just sort of take them at face value, obviously. You've got to look into them deeper and uh, and try to get as much information as you can, just like you would with any sort of miracle report. You want to get as much medical documentation. You want to get as much information as you can before you, you know, make some sort of conclusion or decision. Um, anyways, this is this has just been uh, a great discussion. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what the audience thought as well. So if you'd like to share your thoughts on this discussion, please do that in the comments of this video. But uh, before we go, I do out. want to thank uh, Dr. Guthrie, though, for um, giving us his time tonight and coming and discussing with this. I really do appreciate it. I very much enjoyed his book, too. And so if you haven't, if you haven't I'll, I'll plug it for up this way. It's on his shelf. <laughs> yeah, there it is. I got a second one. For those that, that may not be like the philosopher speak, I've got The Conqueror's Tread, which talks and critiques a, a lot about matters of spiritual warfare. 
Excellent. Yeah. Well, I need to have you back on then to, uh, to discuss that book. So we, we, I had you on to discuss the, uh, the original one, which wasn't that an adaptation of your dissertation? The, yes, the, the, the gods of this world is half of it's an adaptation of the dissertation. And I sort of focus on talking about the ontology of demons. The existential portion was kind of an add on that was interesting. And actually, if you read it, I weed out a lot of what I think Historically, in arguments in favor of demons, I, d I don't think work. Uh, there's like an ontological argument, a, a cosmological argument, and that sort of thing. And I whittle it down to mm, maybe experiences, personal experiences, but mostly this historical argument. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, if you're, if you, the audience are interested in learning more about either of my guests, uh, you can search our archives. We've got uh, over 500 videos that we've done, but uh, several videos with each of these, uh, these guys, I think we've only got one with Dr. Guthrie, but uh, well, two now and, and uh, hopefully more in the future. So uh, thank you guys for joining us. Well, this is going to do it for us tonight. I uh, hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you in the next Capturing Christianity video. So see you soon.